We'll open the word of our God to a couple of places in the New Testament. First, Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, we'll read the verses 30 through 46. Matthew 26, beginning at verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very, very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So far from the Gospel of Matthew, let's also turn to John chapter 17. John 17, it's a more detailed account of the prayer that Jesus was praying there in the garden. John 17, we'll read that whole chapter. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed." I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. 
Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves." I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. So far from God's word. Let's respond by singing from hymn 63, stanza 7. Every Lord's Day in the afternoon, we return to studying the basics of the Reformed faith as we find them confessed in the Heidelberg Catechism. This afternoon, we find ourselves in Lord's Day 52. So let's read that Lord's Day together. The question there is, what is the sixth petition? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That is, in ourselves we are so weak that we cannot stand even for a moment. Moreover, our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh do not cease to attack us. Will you, therefore, uphold and strengthen us by the power of your Holy Spirit, so that in this spiritual war we may not go down to defeat, but always firmly resist our enemies, until we finally obtain the complete victory? How do you conclude your prayer? For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That is all this we ask of you, because as our king, having power over all things, you are both willing and able to give us all that is good. And because not we, but your holy name, should so receive all glory forever. 
What does the word Amen mean? Amen means it is true and certain, for God has much more certainly heard my prayer than I feel in my heart that I desire this of Him. So far from the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus teaches us to pray to God that He would not lead us into temptation. Now, before we get into the details of this petition, take a moment to ask yourself, how much temptation are you okay with being led into? How much do you think you can endure? How much temptation are you strong enough to handle on your own? Now, of course, we know the theological answer to that. The correct answer, of course, is none. But our gut often tells us something different. I can handle maybe this much or maybe even this much. In fact, many of us feel confident that we could handle just about any temptation that might come our way. For many of us, whether we would actually admit that or not, that's our instinctive response. That's the way that we deal with temptations. We walk into temptations quite confident that we're going to be okay. And this maybe is especially true for young people. That same feeling of invincibility that applies to their physical lives that they're famous for is often very true of their spiritual lives as well. Certainly not for all young people, but many feel quite resilient against temptation. And here's why that question matters. The way that we answer that question, how much temptation am I okay with handling, the way we answer that at the level of our instinctive response is going to determine the seriousness with which we pray this prayer. Even if we know theologically that we can't survive temptation on our own, and that we need God's help, that truth often doesn't make it into our way of thinking and into our way of feeling. We often feel like we don't need help, and if that's how we feel, then we won't find ourselves asking for help either. So then this afternoon, let's give our attention to this petition that Christ teaches us to pray, and we'll focus on four things that should drive us to pray this prayer. We'll see first... We pray this when we know what our defeat would look like. Secondly, we pray this when we know ourselves well. Third, we pray this when we know our enemies. And fourth, we pray this because we know that God can keep us from falling. Well, let's start with the big picture. Remember, this this prayer that Jesus taught his disciples doesn't come out of nowhere. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is part of Jesus' greater teaching ministry at the beginning of his ministry. And Matthew 4, 17 summarizes that ministry in a single sentence very well. It says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you see that theme coming back over and over in the Beatitudes. We even saw that this morning, that the, the humble will inherit the kingdom. He says the earth, but he says the kingdom over and over again in in, in, the, in the Beatitudes and in his Sermon on the Mount. So that's, that's the context for this prayer. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, Jesus' message to the people of Israel was really not all that different from Jonah's message to the people of Nineveh. Yet 40 days and this city will be destroyed. 
So Jesus' ministry, in other words, was that in the first place, a call to repentance. And part of that repentance is recognizing how serious our sins are. We saw some of that last week. Think of also what the Lord Jesus teaches us. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so last week we saw the minister here, Reverend Sikama, explain how the Lord teaches us to pray then for the forgiveness of our sins. If we recognize how serious they are, then we will pray for them. It's an essential part of repentance, confession of sin, acknowledging our guilt, our sinfulness, praying to God for mercy. And, and then this petition, the last petition of the prayer, follows right on the heels of the previous one. We desperately need God to forgive us of our debt. And now that we have confessed our sins and God has forgiven our debt, well, our next prayer is, now God, keep me from temptation. Keep me from falling again. So we need to recognize then, we're praying here to God to keep us from joining forces again with the kingdom of darkness that Christ came to destroy. He came preaching, repent for the kingdom is at hand. The old kingdom of darkness was about to be destroyed. The new kingdom of God was here. And we pray then to God, keep us from falling back into that old kingdom that you've delivered us from. That's what defeat would look like for us. We have repented. The kingdom of God is at hand and we have joined. But this prayer acknowledges the reality that there still is inside of us so much that would pull us back to that old kingdom. That would land us on the wrong side of judgment day. And so then immediately after Christ teaches to pray for the forgiveness of our sins, he also teaches us to pray, now lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The enemy, in other words, the enemy of God's kingdom that he's waging war against is not somewhere far away. It's right here in my own heart. The front lines in the battle between those kingdoms is happening right here in my heart. And all too often, we walk right into the battlefield completely unprepared because we think that the battle between God's kingdom and the kingdom of darkness is happening somewhere out there. And whatever happens here in my heart is just peripheral to the big picture. But it's not. We forget that as much as Christ came to save sinners, he also came to destroy the works of darkness and all those who participate in them. And we recognize we are dangerously close, always dangerously close to falling back into the kingdom of darkness. And we most certainly will fall if we do not watch and pray. Either we will join forces with Christ our head and fight against the works of darkness, which means then crucifying our our old nature, putting our sin to death, or we will find ourselves rejoining the very kingdom that Christ came to destroy. And so then the first thing we need to recognize when we pray this prayer is how terrible sin really is, how serious it is, and why we desperately don't want to fall back into temptation. It was our sin that plunged this world into darkness. It was our sin that Christ came to destroy. It was our sin that made a hell out of so much of this world and would actually make it far worse if it wasn't for God's preventing grace. 
It's our sin that has ruined our lives. It's our sin that has destroyed our relationships. The Apostle James, he's so honest about the nature of sin in his letter. He says in in James 1 verse 14, Every person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, and then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It starts with temptation, desire. That's the thing that we're praying that God would keep us from. So small, and often we think so harmless. But James tells us desire eventually will conceive, and when it does, it will bring forth sin. And sin, when it is full grown, will bring forth death. It brings forth death in our relationships. It ruins careers. It destroys families. It breaks down trust. That takes years to build. And worse still, our sin puts a barrier between us and our God. It destroys our conscience. It robs us of our peace that we should have as Christians. Even sometimes, even if we repent and we ask for forgiveness and receive forgiveness, our sin still can haunt us for years after years, sometimes for the rest of our lives. So the sort of half-hearted prayer that we often pray, keep me from temptation, and yet our heart is saying, except I I don't mind just maybe a little bit of it, that kind of prayer has forgotten how dangerous, how deadly sin really is, how destructive it is, and especially in the eyes of a righteous and holy God. Christ teaches us to pray this petition because we are all at risk of recreating the very world that he came to destroy. And if we did, then we ourselves would be destroyed along with it. Now, all all that is not to deny the perseverance of the saints. That's one of our doctrines that we hold dearly. But the saints who persevere are the very ones who are praying this prayer. They are the ones who see the danger that they're in, the war that goes on in their hearts, and that causes them to go to God in prayer. They see what defeat would look like, and so they plead with God, do not let us fall into temptation. So that's the first thing then that should drive us to pray this prayer. We've been rescued from the kingdom of darkness. We know how terrible that kingdom is. We know what defeat would look like if God were to lead us into temptation and leave us there. And so we plead with God, deliver us from that. A second thing that should drive us to pray this prayer is an honest assessment of our own strength to resist temptation. As I mentioned earlier, we we might recognize theologically that we're strong enough to resist temptation on our own, that, that we're not, rather, strong enough to resist temptation on our own. And yet, for some reason, we still don't pray this prayer with the fervency, the earnestness that we ought to. Even if we understand how destructive sin is, we still find ourselves not praying this, not earnestly believing that if we don't watch and pray, then we will fall. Somehow we believe at an instinctive level that we can still handle a good deal of temptation. Well, the text that we read about the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane is is an example of exactly this, this kind of thing. The Lord Jesus was aware of the trial that he and his disciples were about to face. And so he went to Gethsemane with them in order to pray exactly this petition, keep us from temptation. 
He himself needed this time in prayer. He himself wasn't ready yet for the trial that he was about to endure. So he went to the Father to seek the Father's grace. But as he was praying for God's strength, the disciples were falling asleep. After about an hour, Jesus returned to them and he found them sleeping and he rebuked them. Could you not watch with me just one hour? Watch and pray that you do not fall into temptation. Again, for a second time, it says Jesus went to pray. And again, when he came back, presumably another hour or so later, he found them again sleeping. They just couldn't do it. And the text says it happened yet a third time. It's pretty clear at that point. The disciples just could not feel motivated to pray this prayer, even for a single hour straight, let alone three. Now, we might, not, we, we might feel bad for the disciples. Many of us also are not used to praying for a straight hour long either, let alone three. But there's more going on than just a poor attention span. The reason they couldn't pray this is because they didn't feel that they needed to pray this. They didn't sense the urgency of this prayer. And you can see that in the conversation that happened right before this, this account, the conversation between Jesus and Peter before they went to the garden. Jesus told his disciples, you will all fall away because of me this night. And Peter, amazingly, he disagrees with the Lord's prediction about him. He tells him, no, even if they all fall away from you, I will never fall away. But Jesus says to Peter, in effect, you don't even know yourself yet. Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Now, I, I would like to think that if I was so soundly warned by the Lord Jesus that I would probably keep my mouth shut afterwards. But that's not what happened, not with Peter or any of the disciples. Peter insists, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And the text says all the disciples said the same. And, you know, if all of the 11 disciples responded that way, you and I probably would have responded similarly. The disciples were confident that they were not at risk of falling away or denying the Lord Jesus. They were confident about their ability to stand and resist temptation. And that's what lies behind their inability to stay awake, even for an hour, to pray that God would keep them from falling. Because they believed that they were strong enough to handle it on their own, they couldn't be bothered to pray. And that's why the Lord Jesus also warned them when he found them sleeping, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In other words, they didn't know themselves very well. They had figured that they had a pretty willing spirit and that was going to be enough to get them through temptation. They hadn't calculated the weakness of their sinful nature. And this is often what lies behind our failure as well, to pray this prayer with the seriousness that we ought to pray it. We figure we can probably handle the temptation just fine. And maybe for us, just like the disciples, we mean it sincerely. Our spirit really is willing. We feel the same cry that Peter has. I would, I would die sooner than deny you, Lord Jesus. But often what we don't recognize is our flesh is weak. We might be willing to die for the Lord Jesus, and yet when we run into temptation, we find ourselves by our actions denying him. We don't know ourselves very well. 
It's easy in the abstract to think that we can resist temptation because that's not when we're being tempted. Peter and the disciples weren't prepared for a change of circumstances, the one that was coming their way. Peter even has this sort of judgmental attitude towards the other disciples. He says, these all may fall away, those weaklings that they are, but I will never fall away. Soldiers on on the battlefield can often immediately distinguish the veterans from, from the novices. The novices don't know themselves yet. And to be fair, some of them recognize that, they're aware of it. But the insufferable kinds of novices are the ones are also the ones who are most likely to fail on the battlefield. They're the ones who think that they know themselves. They think that they're ready for the battle. So they're full of bravado and they describe all the heroic things that they're going to do once they get to the battlefield and they have no idea at all what's coming their way. Well, many Christians and I would say especially young Christians face temptations in the same way. We've been warned by older Christians to be careful to pray more fervently for God's help against temptation, and yet we're convinced that we're really not at all that serious risk of falling. Well, part of that foolish bravado comes from not recognizing how serious, how deadly sin is, and part of it comes from sinners not knowing themselves. They honestly believe that they will be strong enough to resist when temptation comes their way. Well, a chapter later, Peter found out who he really was. It's one of the most heartbreaking stories in the New Testament, especially because we can all, to some degree, relate to it. He just didn't see the temptation coming, even though the Lord had warned him about it. And so that strong, tough, courageous fisherman and disciple who said he was ready to die for the Lord Jesus melted into a little puddle before a servant girl who, was, who asked if he was one of Jesus' followers. In that moment of fear and uncertainty, he did what he never thought he would do. He flat out denied the Lord Jesus, and not just once, but even three times. When we recognize how weak we really are, and how quickly circumstances can change, then we will pray this prayer that the Lord teaches us to pray. And we will pray this, thirdly, even more urgently, when we recognize how serious our enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, how serious they are about taking us down. Paul tells the church in Ephesus, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The devil has at least three reasons for wanting us to fall. First, it's, it's simply what he delights in. He loves to see sinners fall. Second, it robs God of God's glory when his creatures sin against him, and even more when his own people sin against him. And third, sin is Satan's primary weapon to keep us in his kingdom and out of God's kingdom. With a broken conscience, we will no longer see God as our source of joy. We will no longer feel the desire to do God's will. We will instead see God as our greatest enemy, our greatest threat. And that's exactly how Satan wants us to see God. 
As long as we see God that way, then the relationship between us and God will remain broken and we will never find ourselves doing God's will. And so Satan's kingdom then carries on. So Satan and his fallen angels are absolutely committed to seeing us fall into sin. In our modern scientific culture, we often don't talk about Satan and and demons as serious threats to the church or to our faith. Maybe it's because we don't want to be considered superstitious or primitive. But Paul, and the Lord Jesus too, was certainly aware of the threat that Satan and demons posed to the church. The Lord Jesus spent much of his ministry casting out demons. John 17, the, the prayer that we read together, the prayer that Jesus prayed to the Father, records Jesus as praying, Father, keep them from the evil one. He was very much aware of the threat that Satan posed. He himself had been tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Now, it is certainly true that Satan, ever since Christ has ascended, Satan has been restrained. Revelation 20 speaks of him being bound. So he won't be able to go out and deceive the nations like he used to. The gospel is going to go out. God's church is going to prevail. The kingdom of darkness is not going to last forever. But that doesn't mean that Satan is not going to fight to the death with all the power that he still has to keep his kingdom around. He knows that the day that his kingdom is destroyed is the day that he and his demons will be cast into the lake of fire. And so he and his forces are urgently, desperately at work, even while they're restrained, to do everything possible to keep the church from, to cause the church to stumble, to keep the church from gaining ground. And if he can succeed in causing a Christian to fall, thereby destroying the witness of the gospel, thereby destroying that Christian's conscience, he will do everything possible to make it happen. And so if we believe that we can stand up on our own against Satan's temptations without needing to pray, we have no idea what kind of enemy we're up against. Peter says that he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to destroy. And so, brothers and sisters, we ought to pray fervently every day that God would preserve us from Satan's power. He has more than, somewhere in the area of 6,000 years of experience in deceiving and tempting. But God does promise to preserve us if we pray. He just does not promise to preserve those who don't watch or pray. And besides the devil, we have another enemy, the world. When scripture speaks of the world as our enemy, it refers to the world that's still under the kingdom of darkness. And the world loves to see us fail. Many of us have experienced this, and we see it in the news and around the world as well. Persecution against the church is as severe today as ever it has been. Christians, by their worship of God, are a constant testimony to the world that their works are evil. And the world hates to see it. The world hates Christians because of it. That's what the Lord Jesus also said in his prayer. The world hates my disciples because they are not of the world. The Apostle Peter describes this in in 1 Peter 4, verse 4. He says, They are surprised when you do not join with them in their flood of debauchery, and so they malign you. 
For some of us who work in the trades, for example, with unbelieving colleagues, this can be a daily experience, the maligning of those who don't fear God, constantly waiting and urging a Christian to fall, to stumble. It's a never-ending trial. The same is true for young people headed into universities. The unbelieving world always seems to be waiting on edge, doing everything they can for us to fall, and then rejoicing when we do fall, because it's their way of feeling better about their own sinful lives. So we have that enemy as well. Not only do we deal with the weakness of the flesh and the enemy that's inside of us, but the devil has also declared war on us, and in addition to that, we face the constant pressure of the world, urging us to abandon our faith. And that may even grow more severe in the years to come, if God doesn't bring our country to its knees. Well, with all those threats against us, along with an honest recognition of our own weakness and the serious consequences of failure, that should make us very seriously concerned with the possibility of failure. And it is, it is a real possibility. Think of the warning that the author of the Hebrews gave to the saints. He said, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Again, yes, we do believe, we do confess in the perseverance of the saints, but that perseverance will only happen through vigilance and prayer. Hebrews 6 teaches us that there will be some who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and yet who failed to be vigilant, who never bothered to pray, and who ultimately fell away. All these threats should make us very concerned about the possibility of failure. At the same time, this is our fourth point, they shouldn't make us despair. Because by teaching this prayer, Christ also does assure us that those who do watch and pray will not fall away. God is able to keep us from falling if we continue to pray. Think of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12. There's a warning in those verses, in that verse, but there's also an assurance. Paul writes, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That's that's the warning that he leaves for us. Here's the assurance. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. God gives us a way of escape. He gives us no greater temptation than the strength that he has also given us to endure it. And not only does God give us a way of escape, but he also uses those trials for our strength and our growth. Consider what James, the Apostle James, teaches in James 1. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. God is able to keep us from falling away. He's even able to use our temptations for our growth and for our strengthening. And he promises then to answer the prayer, do not lead us into temptation. He promises to give the necessary wisdom and strength to be able to endure. 
Think of the promise that the Apostle James also makes in, in James 1 verse 5. He says, If any of you lacks wisdom, presumably for those trials that he's just mentioned, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will, he says, be given to him. God may lead unrepentant sinners into trials in order to destroy them, but when he leads those who put their trust in him into trials, he does so in order to strengthen them and to build them up, to refine their faith. Think of the words of Peter in 1 Peter 1. He says, Now for a little while you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, let us be on guard. Let us watch and pray. Apart from God's grace, there are a thousand reasons to believe that we will fail and be lost forever. And even with God's grace, on this side of eternity, we are always living right on the edge, always feeling the pull of sin. And so let us pray and never cease praying, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil, so that instead of destroying us, these trials would instead make our faith shine all the brighter to his praise and glory and also to our joy. Amen. Let's respond by singing from Psalm 141, stanza 2, 3, 4, and 7.